HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty and the jazz is musicians. It's like it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Josh Green. We'll talk to Josh about 2019, the year in wine. We'll taste some interesting wines from Champagne for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Josh Green really needs no introduction on the Grape Nation. This is his fourth appearance, and we invite him on the show at the end of each year. And we invite him to look back at the past year in wine, which will be 2019. Josh Green has been the editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine since 1986. Welcome back to the Great Nation, Josh. Great to see you, Sam. Um, I think we have a lot to talk about. Um, Again, thanks for joining us. Like I said, this is your fourth appearance. I had started this show four years ago in September. You and I met at a, I forgot, it was one of those chef club dinners with Laura Catena. Exactly, yeah. And, and um, I asked Laura, introduce me to Josh, 
because I just started this show, and I'd love to talk to Josh. And just as a sidebar, Laura was the first guest ever on The Great Nation. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It was when she brought the chef up from Argent- from Buenos Aires. It was yeah. a Jewish South American mm-hmm. chef, which was kind of an interesting dinner, and she paired um, all the wines with it. So that was fun. So, Josh, it's always great to have you here, and uh, I enjoy talking to you, and just for your ego, this is one of the more listened to shows of the year. Great. So I love to hear nice that. Thing. All right. So I don't know if I prepared you for this, but see if you could handle it. Out of the shoot, what were the one or two big stories or trends in wine in 2019? Is that a hard question to answer or can you approach that? No, I think, we, I, think I can approach that. I think that for me, the two biggest stories in wine in 2019 were rosé and climate change. All right, so two things. They require a little explanation and attention, Mm -hmm. so let's start with rosé. And rosé is sort of mysterious to me, but I think it's a really interesting phenomenon of the less is more movement in wine. Um, For maybe 20 years from 1991 through 2009, 2010, more and more and more and more was more. And people really pushed to pack wines with a lot of volume and a lot of power. And the fact that, you know, at the time, at that time, rosé was really considered a nothing. And it was just what was left over that you bottled and sold to people who didn't know what they were drinking. And now there's some really beautiful rosés being produced but it's not just that there are rosés being produced, it's that there are wines, still wines, that are not a whole lot more concentrated than a rosé, but have a lot of flavor and flavor depth and flavor intensity. We tasted a, um, a wine from, Men- from Mendocino for the last issue. It was a Merlot. It looked like a rosé. It wasn't a rosé. It looked like a rosé. It didn't taste like any Merlot I've ever had before. And it was a natural wine. Um, and it really um, appealed to... Well, I was tasting in L.A. And it really appealed to Sydney Love, who's our tasting director out there. Um, she And she's part of the whole natural wine scene in L.A., right. which is a very big place for natural wine. Um, as you know, you said that they that um, raw wine just went out there, right. and um, it was just fascinating to taste a wine like that and see, you know, because it's not the only one that we've seen this year. We've seen a lot of wines coming through that are very delicate, and that's fantastic. You know, when you get a delicate wine that has flavor intensity, and so I think the rosé phenomenon has helped to has helped to build that other sort of side gig right. that's going on, right? Um, you also mentioned climate change. We could probably do a show on climate change. Or like a life on climate change. Right. So you brought it up, and I agree it's a top-of-the-list issue. Um, But tell me your thoughts, you know, currently and in the context of the show in 2019 and looking forward? Well, I I tried to do two articles this year on climate change. One was about Bordeaux and about how Bordelais producers were looking at pre-phylloxera vines to, um, you know, 
while I was working on the story and researching the story, in fact, Bordeaux and Bordeaux Superior changed their um, their regulations, allowing new varieties to be planted and grown and produced as Bordeaux or Bordeaux Superior. All right. So before you explain that, just for our listeners, tell them quickly what phylloxera is. Okay. A lot of people know, some yeah. don't. And pre-phylloxera obviously preceded when what so, you're going to explain. Phylloxera was a plant louse that was brought to Europe on American vine roots. Um, American vines are different species. Um, I believe it's different species, not different genus, but different species of um, vitis. And so you have resistance to these to this vine louse with American vine roots. They're, they tend to be thicker. They tend to have um, less delicate... Um, root tips and things, and the vine louse can't eat them as readily. You bring that same louse to Europe when in the 19th century, a lot of plant material was being moved around. People had these big plant collections and, and arboreta and all sorts of things going on. And so you bring the, this louse to Europe, it starts consuming all of the vines, all of the historic vines in Europe. And they realized after a while, it took them a few decades to figure out that they needed to plant their vines on American rootstock to graft them so ah. that they could so that they could sustain their vines and beat out this louse. Um, there are places where you get people planting on people planting vines on their own roots. But basically around 18 I think it was the late 1850s, early 1860s is when this started to be seen. And it ran through the late, you know, ran through probably 1890 before they really began to resolve it. Um, it spread throughout France, throughout Spain. Um, there was a lot of disruption. And a lot of the plants that were sustainable on rootstock were different from what had been used before for those places. So in Bordeaux, before phylloxera, you had Carmenere and Malbec being the primary varieties for Bordeaux. After phylloxera, <clears throat> you had Cabernet and Merlot being the primary varieties because they performed well on rootstock, on American rootstock, and Carmenere did not which is one of the reasons that you see, I don't know if people have seen Carmenere from Chile. In Chile, they don't have rootstock in a lot of the vineyards. And Carmenere thrives in Chile without rootstock. Malbec thrives in Argentina. But did, so the Carmenere and Malbec thrived. And then because of the phylloxera, they shifted or, or Merlot and Cab was hardier. What kind of time period are we talking about to find out you know, are we talking five years, 10 years, 15, 20? It was, it was a several decade transition. It was a several, okay. And then by the early 19th century, a lot of it, a lot of it had been resolved and, and people were beginning to deal with rootstocks and, and experiment with rootstocks. And so you'll see maps of, um, in fact, one of the wines we have here today, um, there's a map from, I think, 1901 or some sometime in the, at the turn of the century, at the turn of the um the 20th century, that this particular vineyard was mapped 
for what kind of rootstock would grow in such a heavy chalk vineyard. So people were really beginning to think about where do you where where can these plants survive using American rootstock? And what's crucial about this is that a lot of the vines were lost. A lot of the varieties were lost in Bordeaux or ignored. And now with climate change, there are there's a lot of genetic diversity that has the ability, these vines have the ability to sustain freshness in their grapes or, or perform in ways that can accommodate a changing climate that some of the vines that are planted there like now like Merlot cannot because Merlot will spike in a, in a hot vintage, Merlot will spike to 15% alcohol in a few days, if not a day. And sometimes you'll get 16% alcohol in some of your lots and people can't use it. So people are looking for varieties that are performing differently from the ones that, have be, that we've become accustomed to. And the ability to find these, so, so what I did in, for the April issue, I, I went over to Bordeaux and did some research on people who had prephylaxera vineyards. There are not a lot of them, but there's still some there. And tasted the wines, they don't really taste like the Bordeaux's that we know. Because what, the, what's the difference? Or when you say that, there's well, a distinction you can make. I don't know exactly how to describe these wines because I, I, I went to visit a guy who's near Fonsac. He's right on the river. And so his vineyard survives. His name is Frederick Mallier. And he has Spell a... Mallier. M-A-L-L-I-E-R, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me just check that. I'm pretty... Yeah. Um, oh. And he's got an old sort of... 10th or 11th century chapel and outside of this chapel there was a vineyard planted and the vineyard is below the below a levee on the on the um on the river so it's below the level of the river and it would flood so it the flooding killed the phylloxera because the phylloxera can't survive it, it drowns and so the vines over time began to accommodate to the phylloxera. And so he has all these pre-phylloxera vines there, including this weird thing called Bouchelet. I'd never heard of it before. Is he that had, a variety? It's a variety, yeah. Okay. And so he had a census done of his vineyard, and something like 60% of it is Bouchelet. <clears throat> and one year, he actually made 100% Bouchelet wine, which was very dark, very inky, very intense, not at all like a Cabernet or a Merlot or a Cabernet Franc or anything that you think of as a modern Bordeaux. Um, but he had all these other vines as well. And the blend is really beautiful. The blend of these vines is really beautiful and very distinctive and very unusual. And there's another producer that I went to see in Arsac near Margot um, that had a, a similar situation where their vineyard would flood and so it, it was right on a canal, the vineyard would flood, and so the vines survived. And they're right next to Chateau Palmer, and Chateau Palmer's using their vines to experiment with pre varieties. Other than the, Other than, the major blending grapes. Yeah. And, um, so with, with the intention of possibly down the road using it to blend in a, yeah. in a Palmer? Yeah, because Palmer's have been experimenting with Syrah, but they've also been experimenting. Thomas Deru um, is is working with the two partners at 
Closerie de Moussy, um, which is the which they have the um, they rent this vineyard, and they and they have a whole range of things they don't even know all of them that are there, and he's picking them and and um, he's choosing choosing the ones to propagate and plant on Palmer's land to experiment with them. So it's that to me is a really interesting development in Bordeaux to look at rather than to look at Syrah, rather than to look at outside grapes, but to look at grapes from the history of Bordeaux and use them, use the bio, use the genetic diversity to sustain Bordeaux through climate change. So I'm not sure if this is the proper question, but the stock from those vineyards that were flooded, you know, that that were able to, you know, they survived. Survived the, mm-hmm. the the phylloxera louse and all of that. Can those be grafted, or sure. and will that make the grafted rootstock? Our technology now for, I mean, the the big future um, research that will go on with viticulture is in rootstock. You don't hear many people talking about rootstock research in any depth. You hear people talking a lot about varieties. And what will allow vines to survive climate change is developing rootstocks that are sustainable in a changing climate. And so the the technologies that we have to deal with rootstocks now are very different from what they were 100 years ago. And these, the pairing of rootstocks with these ancient varieties will require a lot of experimentation, but we have the tools to do that now that we didn't have 100 years ago. So clear one thing up for me. Does that increase the potential of a varietals, take Bordeaux specifically, um, or does that strengthen the existing varietals? Literally, I mean, does the stock grafted strengthen, or you will now see an introduction of of these grapes? I would say all of the above. I think that you're going to see an introduction. The the new regulations in Bordeaux and Bordeaux Superior allow some foreign grapes. They allow more of these pre-phylloxera grapes, and they will. I think these. I think these grapes will begin to infiltrate the higher levels of Bordeaux appellations as time goes on. Um, there well, is what also, do you think time-wise, 20, 30, 40 years? You tell me, Sam. It well, really, it I really think depends. it's such a staid, traditional area. Yeah, that, but, that but how quickly will the climate change? That's how, what's going to force radical, it. How radical Agreed. will the change be forced? And so we, you know, we're, we're sort of copacetic about it saying, oh, yeah, we need to deal with climate change. It may strike us in six months that, oh my God, we need to deal with climate change. And at that point, people will say, hey, we don't have a vineyard any longer. We need something to plant. These are the things we should be planting. Can you allow it? And one, you know, it was interesting to me. I had a conversation with a woman, Allison Jordan, who heads up sustainability for the California Wine Institute. And she was saying that California has more flexibility because they can plant whatever they want. And in the old world, you have these regulations that 
you know, Bordeaux has to be these things and Brunello has to be these things and whatever. And I said to her, well, that may be the case, but California has boxed itself in with varietal marketing. So whereas in Bordeaux, you're selling Bordeaux, you're not selling Cabernet, you're not selling Merlot, you're selling Bordeaux. And Bordeaux can be whatever Bordeaux decides it's going to be. Cabernet Sauvignon has to be Cabernet Sauvignon by law. (laughs) Unplanned, it's branded and marketed better, (laughs) right? I I mean, it's just a better way to move forward, right? Because people think of California as the big Cabernet Sauvignons. They're kind of boxed into that. Yeah, so so in in some ways, yes, there's more freedom in California, but the market demands a certain thing. And, and the California producers have taught the market to demand that. And, and so that is a limiting factor for them in terms of dealing with climate change. Right. Um, so that, that's a good example of climate change. And in answer to the question of top stories, rosé and climate change, there's a specific example of how climate change is affecting. And I'm, you know, I'm positive there's many, many other examples. Um, you spent some time this past year researching some interesting wines and things and what you just discussed was one of them mm-hmm. in in looking at the year at grapes regions winemakers and wineries there were a couple of other um interesting projects that you researched one was Coutou Champenois and then this growth of hybrids in the northeast mm-hmm. let's talk about the Coteau Champenois. And before you do that, let's pour one out and tell me quickly what we're drinking. Sure. And then tell me about, this is an interesting topic that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Okay, so let me describe what this is Wait, first. Wait, pour the wine first. Pour, pour the wine first? Okay. Yeah. So you can do two things time. We're going to start with a Jean Vazel Bouzy Rouge 2009. B-E-S-S-E-L-L-E. Yep. And okay. Then, then in Bouzy. Bouzy is one of the crew regions of yep. Champagne, B-O-U-Z-Y. Exactly. Okay. It's, a, it's a Grand Cru in Champagne. And this is this is a red wine from Pinot Noir grapes from 2009. 100% Pinot? 100% Pinot Noir. So it's a Pinot Noir. It is a Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is one of the three major blending grapes of Champagne. But the story here is we're talking about champagne, but Josh, we're talking about still wines. So that's the lead into this, so this topic. So this is the other, or this is one of the other um, climate change stories I was thinking I was going to do. And on my first visit, um, actually with Francis Eli, who makes a really brilliant um, Ambonet Rouge, I said that I was here because I'd seen a lot more Coteau Champenois coming into the market um, and that I was interested in learning more about it and how climate change might be affecting it. And he just sort of scoffed at me and said, <laughs> this has nothing to do with climate change. And he'd been making Coteau Champenois for years. And, and as he said, before Champagne was a sparkling wine, it was a still wine. And it was a red wine and it was feeding, you know, they, they sold a lot of red wine to Paris for centuries. And the there was a lot of bad red wine being made in Champagne. And one of the reasons that they created sparkling wine was to deal with this challenging climate that they had. And it became a huge moneymaker for them. So nobody wants to give up Champagne. But Coteau Champenois, at this point, one of the best, his wine, his 2008, 
is one of the most amazing Pinot Noirs from France that I've ever tasted. And just Pinot Noir in general. Yeah. I mean, you can, t- and you this can is, place it with... How did you, you can pronounce taste it with, his name? Um, Francis Eli. E-G-L-Y? Yep. And the second part of the champagne, Oriet? Eli Orier. Yeah. Eli Orier. Yep. Right. Which is a very terrific and, yeah. you know... So he's in, he's in one of the top crews in, in Champagne. I mean, Ambonet is where... Right. Um, Krug has their Claude Ambonet. It's, um, it's a very high-class town. And he makes this amazingly beautiful, fresh, long-lived Pinot Noir that's not like a Burgundy, but as complex as Champenois, as a Burgundy is a Burgundy. And it's, um, it's riveting stuff. So the f- Wait, I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Um, same grape, Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Pinot Noir and Burgundy. Pinot mm-hmm. Noir, big contributor to Champagne. What's the difference? Why is it less Burgundian? Is that an obvious Climate answer? Climate and soil. The climate and soil has a total effect on the grape, even if it's vinted similarly? Yeah. So from his point of view, he will not make Coteau Champenois from a vineyard that faces the sunset. He will only only make Coteau Champenois from a vineyard that faces the sunrise because he says that that the soil on the sunset side is different from the soil on the sunrise side, on the morning sun side. And he needs the soil on the morning sun side because as over millennia, that morning sun soil is, has developed differently than the, than the hotter soil on the other side. He needs a warm enough spot, but he also needs a morning sun spot. And, you know, so it's very particular to get, to get ripeness in that, in that particular place is tough. Right. And for, for a, for red wine. Now this is in Bouzy. One of the reasons that I thought it would be really interesting to bring these two wines is that Jean Bessel is from, um, there, there's probably more um, Cote de Champenois and Bouzy. There's, a, um, there's an Académie de Vin de Bouzy that Paul Barra founded with some other folks in the, I think in the 90s when uh, Delphine Bessel started. She was, um, and she joined that group and they they work together on developing Coteau Champenois for from Bouzy. And um Bollinger, which I also have their um Cote aux Enfants, before Jacques Bollinger bought this vineyard, the Cote the Cote aux Enfants, Lillian um Lily Bollinger had vines in, in Bouzy. Or is buying vines. I, I don't. Really, I don't know whether they were buying the fruit or whether they were owning the fruit and owning the vines in Bouzy. But they were making Bouzy Rouge. And the reason I got turned on to this was because I went to a ta- I went to a lunch at Bollinger maybe three or four years ago, and they were inaugurating their cellar that they discovered all these ancient vines back to 1829 that they had found that had been hidden from the Nazis. And one of the wines they poured was a 1928 Bouzy Rouge, which was spectacular wine, delicate, transparent, as transparent as a rosé, but so much life and so much freshness for 
a wine that was so this is a 28 you, you know, tasted years four old. years ago and yeah. you're describing it like this yeah it was gor- gorgeous wine and so, so it shows that was the, the structure and ageability yeah so that was boozy rouge now bollinger is making a um, wine from ie so a y which is a another, y, yeah right so we have a, a um, boozy rouge from vazelle and we have a um, Cote aux Enfants, which is a single vineyard at the very top of the hill in Ai. So I don't think a lot of my listeners know much about this. We, we're, Nobody does. We're big Okay, <laughs> Actually, that's where in, I was going. We're big advocates of champagne. Yeah, people and, in Champagne know something about it. But So what? Peter Leem knows something about right, it. Right, but it, that's it, Peter's it, you know, yeah. job. Um, so what's to be of this? Is this going to proliferate? proliferate a little more are we going to see more of it or is it going to be these will always be rare wines so Um, the good news here is that you've spent some time trying them researching them writing about them we're talking about them they exist there's not a ton of it there's not a ton of them The, the reason that i think it's exciting right now is that you can find these on wine lists and they are at a level of um complexity and um, a level of deliciousness and a level of satisfaction that you would get from a great Grand Cru Burgundy. And they tend to be much less expensive than a, than a Grand Cru Burgundy on a wine list. Um, because would you compare it to because like they're unknown. a Bourguignon or it's even different than that? A Bourguignon. Like from Burgundy. Well, you know, I, uh, I, I'd, I'd, I would say that it's on the level of a Grand Cru Burgundy. Right. But... Um, but that it's it's different because they are, they they t- the structure is different. They they are well, fresher. Well, let's talk about this wine. So, okay. color wise, um, it's it's a lighter. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've seen enough Burgundies like this, but it tends to be a little lighter. Um, the nose is not a typical Burgundy nose to nope. me, is it? Right. Um, the mouthfeel, it's a medium mouthfeel. It's not a thin wine. It's not a heavy wine. No, it's more delicate, I think, than... But it, it's structured differently. The, the chalk soils feed the vines differently than, than the limestone soils in, in Burgundy, the limestone clay soils in Burgundy. And you have more... Um, you, you, have a, you have a different reaction. You have a different pH in the wine. Um, the edges are a little harder. Not, the, not harder, but not hard. They're not hard, but yeah. they're just... They're, yeah. They're it, not as finessed or smooth as. Well, I think that if if we left this Jean Bazel in a carafe for in a decanter for a few hours, it would it would gentle a little bit yeah. and open up more, and the fruit would become more fresh. Um, the fruit is fresh; the fruit would become more open. I think that she doesn't use any wood on her wine, so this is um, this is made in stainless steel, and it is designed to. She she talks about cherry pit flavor in the wine yes it's definitely a red fruit Mm -hmm. and the cherry and the pit because there's a little stoniness Mm -hmm. and not minerality but something like that but this is a 10 year old wine and to me it does not taste like a 10 year old Mm -hmm. wine at all it tastes very fresh yeah it tastes completely fresh it's a terrific wine and you're right now that we've talked about it and people know about it they should look for it and try it um so that's Cotou Champenois. Towards the end of the show, we'll taste the uh, Boulanger. 
and right. we'll do a quick comparison too, and you know we'll get into a few more things. Um, Josh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to continue on this topic. There is another interesting area that you uh, spent some time looking into, and that's the rise of hybrids in the Northeast, Mm -hmm. which some people may say, what am I talking about? And we'll explain it. Um, We're talking to Josh Green. Josh is the publisher and editor of Wine and Spirits magazine. We'll be right back, and we will uh, continue to talk about uh, 2019. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Josh Green, publisher and editor of Wine and Spirits magazine. We invite Josh every year and at the end of the year to talk about the year and wine. Um, Josh, I want you to talk to me about another thing that you spent some time physically up there and researching, and that's the rise of hybrids in the Northeast. So there's two things in that statement. I need you to discuss and describe what you mean by hybrids. And I think when people think about wine, they go, what are you talking about, Vermont? Mm -hmm. So let's talk. There are some players there. Not only Vermont, but Quebec and Nova Scotia. For sure. Um, So hybrids are, um, some are crosses, some are hybrids between Vitis Labrusca and Vitis Vinifera. Um, American vines and European vines. Is Labrusca American? American, yeah. And Vinifera is the European. European. Okay. And so in this country, especially in the Midwest, there had been a lot of research done over the last century on planting, on crossing, creating hybrids that would survive either really cold winters or intense seasonal issues um, intense weather that was not what you would find in France um, or what you might find in California. Uh, so a lot of these were developed. People, I don't want to say that they didn't pay adequate attention to them, but they weren't given the kind of care in general that vinifera grapes were. And so you had you had situations where you were getting good table wine, 
little funky, not so interesting, nothing special. And for many, many years, hybrids were just considered good table wine. You'd save all Blanc from New York State. You had, you, you had a lot of Catawba. Sort of, well, Catawba, I think Catawba is, is Labrisca. I don't think it's a hybrid. I think it, okay. but I could be wrong. I think it may be a hybrid. I get confused about Catawba. Um, but people are making really good Catawba now. Yes. Yeah. And um, like Pascaline has a Catawba pet Ch- cat. Chapica. Yeah. Um, right. With Nathan Kendall. Yeah. Pascaline Le Peltier, who's right. at, um, at Racine's. Um, so what, what's, what's happening now is that there are very talented wine growers looking at hybrids seriously, saying these are legitimate plants. We're going to treat them like legitimate vineyards and we're going to treat them as if they were as the same level as a vinifera grape. And we're going to experiment with what we can do with them. We'll try to figure out how we use them rather than try to put them in a box like this should be like a Chardonnay, this should be like a Cabernet. We'll figure out what they're going to do best and make an interesting wine. So I was driving north to a climate change conference, a conference that Michelle Buffard does in, in Quebec called Tasting Climate Change. And she'd gotten some really great people coming in. So I was excited to go to this. And I I called, I, I emailed Deirdre Heakin, who has this wine called, she has this winery called La Garagista. And I said, can I stop by? I've heard a lot about you. I want to, I, I want to see what you're doing. I made, made, made an appointment for three o'clock in the afternoon, figuring I'll spend an hour there and then drive a few hour, another hour and a half to, to a hotel and then drive north after that the next day. So she and her husband, her husband Caleb um, Barber, they had a restaurant up there. She's in there in Barnard, Vermont, um, near Montpellier. They had a restaurant, they were doing farm to table food and they started this vineyard where they were also growing they were growing vegetables, they were growing fruit, they were growing a lot of things in their vineyard all together. And eventually, I think around 2010, they, they basically gave up the restaurant or it became too much and they, or they focused much more on the, around that time they began to focus much more on the wine. And they're very experimental. She, is, she was the sommelier, he was a chef. And she has all sorts of weird things that she does that are basically around regenerative agriculture and thinking about these vines as um, as organi- organisms that are the same level of species as we are. Um, so she has a vineyard called West Addison, which is right on Lake Champlain that she rents. And she showed me pictures of it. I didn't get down there. It was in the middle of November or something. Um, she showed me pictures of it from August where she has flowers actually growing up into the vines. Wow. And she's completely devoted to biodiversity in all sorts of ways. So that in her vineyards in Barnard, she's got all sorts of fruit trees. She plants her vegetables right with the vines. Um, She's been tending them in different ways to try to see how they're gonna perform best. And then she's been taking She's been, act, she's been acting on things like taking clay from the soil in the West Addison Vineyard and having a Quebec um, 
potter make an amphora out of it and then fermenting or aging the wine in this in, wow. this, in this amphora. So she has she has a wine called Vinu Junku. Spell, can you? V-I-N-U, new word, J-U-N-C-U. Junku. And I think that it's a riff on a Sicilian wine. I'm not exactly sure what it is. It's not like anything I've ever tasted before. It's made from a grape called La Crescent, um, which is, I think, from Missouri or somewhere out in the Midwest. And it is spectacular wine. I bought a bottle from her. It's a red. It's a white. It's a white. Yeah. <laughs> Bad guess. I bought a bottle from her and took it up to um, the Tasting Climate Change Conference. And after the conference, a lot of the speakers got together for a dinner. And I was sitting with Veronique Rive, who, um, who is one of the leading sommeliers in Quebec, in Canada, in fact. And Eric Asimov was on my right. And there were a lot of people from Europe with wines from very high level wines from Europe that we were all pouring, passing around the table. And I had this wine. Everyone was asked to bring a local wine. And I had this wine from this Vino Junku that I'd bought from her. And we, we finished that bottle. A lot of the other stuff did not get finished. So everybody liked it. People liked it. I mean, we... Right at our, our at our end of the table, we were drinking it. And how would you describe it? I mean, what? Oof, you know, um, you always want somebody to say it's Chardonnay like or Sauvignon Blanc, nothing like, or like anything like what, that. What, was it a full bodied? Was it a lighter wine? It's a it's what you would consider um, a natural wine. Okay, um, which is what she does. Yeah, which is what she does. She's never had any yeast, any commercial yeast brought into her winery. All local, uh, indigenous. Um, I mean, I can look up my notes on it if you want. Um, no, I think I'll post it after yeah. you and I'll, um, talk. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll give you my notes on it. But, yeah, because um, it's, it's very, what struck me about it was the depth of flavor, the complexity of this wine, the length of flavor of this wine, the, the beauty of it, and the lightness. You know, it was, it, it had deep flavors, but it wasn't heavy. And it was, it, it just tasted like the Northeast. Really? You know, it, it just, it, there's. You know, I, I, I've never had a wine from Vermont. I had 20 wines from Vermont with them. I stayed with them till 10.30 that night. You did? So. <laughs> That's great. I knew it was going somewhere. I didn't think 10.30. Jesus, like seven so, hours. Yeah. Um, and but you also mentioned a Frontenac Noir. Frontenac Noir, which, which is, is which, the red. Which is a red, yep. And it's considered a not a very high-class grape by many people who make it, who grow it. And she made this spectacular, what she calls her ode to Amarone, um, where she, I think she dries the grapes. I'd have to look again at my notes to see exactly what she does because her processes are very But it intricate. has that Amarone body. And it's not really Amarone-like. No? It's just that I think the process is a little bit Amarone-like. But the outcome is The different. outcome is that she gets a deeply flavorful, rich red wine out of Frontenac Noir that nobody gets. Wow. You know, no, people don't get that out of Frontenac Noir. So it's, um, she, she's figured out this grape, how to grow this grape and how to, how to get it to express itself in a way that other people haven't. Very interesting. Um, we have to move along, but that segues me to another topic that I want to talk to you about, certainly timely in these times. Um, I want to talk about natural wines, and you and I discussed this in advance, and you pointed me in what I thought was the right direction. You know, you say natural wine is really about the farming, 
and that is much more important in terms of active participation by the farmer or winemaker. In the cellar, it's really a matter of not adding things for convenience sake and not screwing things up. So in all the guests that I've had and all the discussions, the bulk of talking about natural wines goes back to farming and the farmer. Just give me your take on that and natural wines and, and you know the movement right now. One of my battles... Because you were taken aback by La Garagiste. No question. Well, I had no idea what she was doing. I just had heard about her. And right. I just and everyone said they loved her, and I just thought she was like a cool... She's a colorful person. Yeah, I just thought she was going to be a cool, colorful person, and that was going to be it. But right. she's actually a super talented farmer um, and a super talented wine shepherd. Um, so one of the battles that I have in this business is that whenever I visit anyone, I always want to see their vineyards. And many producers want to take a wine journalist to their cellar and taste a bunch of wine with them and get them to write tasting notes on their wine. That's the first thing they'll go to usually. Yeah. Well, that's the, what they, you know, they, not the stroll in the field. How much time do we have? Well, right. we don't really have time for the vineyard. Let's just go right. to the cellar and taste a bunch of wine. Um, I think that you can learn more about someone in their wine in their vineyard than you can in their winery. I agree. And you see, you know, I, for me, it's really valuable to see a vineyard to stand in the vineyard, to spend time in the vineyard and, and get the feel of what that vineyard feels like, to, to understand how they've been farming it. And that tells me a lot about the wine I'm going to taste. So when I, when I think about the natural wines that I like to drink, they're, vi they're vines that have been farmed with, talented, with talent and with, like, with incredible care. And if you, if you farm your vines with that kind of care and you have the good fortune of a vintage that isn't going to screw you, which it can, um, you can make beautiful wine without doing much to it in the cellar, if anything. Um, on the other hand, if things get out of hand in the vineyard and you bring them into the cellar and you don't do anything the cellar is going to get out of hand. And if you don't keep your cellar clean, you know, I've seen a lot of great wine made in dirty cellars, but I've also seen a lot of disgusting wine made in dirty, dirty cellars. <laughs> so, and I've seen disgusting wine made in very clean cellars right. as well. So it's just, but if, if you don't, if you don't tend to your cellar and maintain your wood and maintain, you know, you can, you can get a lot of taste in unmanipulated wine that is not from the grapes. Right, so before your low intervention, your space literally has to be... You have to be careful. ...clean, your barrels, your tanks, mm. literally the floors and all of that. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll contribute to... I mean, like that Merlot. Is that part of the problem of a lot of natural wines or some... For me, it is. For other people, it isn't. Other people like all of that... That wasn't the question. My question was, life. does it contribute... To good and bad natural wines, like some people just are not as clean as others. Or well, Sam, I, I think that you know, good and bad. When it comes to natural wine, it's you know, if you talk good and bad, I think you're sort of going to miss on a lot of the people who are into natural wine. Right. So um, that wasn't. Yeah. So didn't mean it that way. Um, I, I look Polarizing. at yeah the the Merlot I was talking about that that's made by Donkey and Goat. Um, Tracy and Jared. That was a donkey and goat. You didn't a say. And goat one, okay. Yeah. Tracy and Jared are really. They are so careful about their hygiene in their vineyard, in their winery, and they make natural wines, but they're really clean natural wines. 
And there are other people that make very clean natural wines. And then you've got other people who make pretty funky natural wines. Some can be beautiful and some can just be completely flawed and yet people will drink them. So it's, I mean, a, a little bit of the mystery around natural wine to me is that people will drink very flawed natural wine and, and ignore what are, I agree. ignore the mousiness, ignore I, the I, protanomyces, ignore the, ignore the, the obvious things that are. There's been numerous articles yeah. on mousiness, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, here's, here's what I don't understand. Um, is that a style what we're talking about, or is that a result of practice? Um, I think it's a flaw. It's a flaw. Yeah, I think a it's lot just, of the, it's, thing, the mousiness and yeah. things that perplex people about natural wines are more. It's it, it's an unnecessary flaw. I think that you can make beautiful natural wine with care. Donkey and goat. I mean, yeah. you just, oh, but there are many other people. No, I mean, no, I know, yeah, but that's so, yeah. an example. Yeah, yeah there, there mm-hmm. are many, you know, others for sure. Um, in Europe, in Spain, mm-hmm. in Italy, you know, everywhere. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, all right, so that's a good take on natural wines. Um, you know, Deirdre is certainly a good practitioner and an interesting example. Um, I just want to ask you quickly, um, your magazine is an important um, player in restaurants, wine lists, you know, sommeliers and all of that stuff. Um, Any stories in restaurants? I mean, are... Is natural wine, you know, proliferating more, you know, when you look back at, because you do restaurant surveys and all that, I mean, what do you see when you look back? We haven't seen natural wine come up so much in in our restaurant survey, but we have certainly seen a lot more natural wine restaurants and natural wine bars, especially since we moved our office to LA a couple of years ago, LA being a center for natural wine. There are a lot of lists in L.A. that are focused on natural wine. There are a lot of lists here in New York now that are focused on natural wine. And it's interesting to me. We're at Roberta's. Yeah. Which is is focused on natural wine. Franchette, Stella, Mm -hmm. you know, established places. Yeah. And they're not not esoteric places. Racine's Racine's is all about natural wine. Right. Um, And these are successful businesses that are making a go with what was considered a very esoteric category for a long time. Doing well with it. What about any stories or trends sort of in the mainstream restaurants? Well, we're just getting ready to do our restaurant poll now. So um, last year, last year, I think the biggest trends, I think the biggest trends last year were just the diversity of wines that were showing up at the top of the list it used to be it used to be narrower and more predictable it used to be more brand oriented and now now it's very sort of som driven and social media driven i think that you you get you get some of the big brands but you also get som driven trends where mentor some mentors are being looked to for ideas in some of the big cities 
and some of the outlying cities are picking up on them and saying, oh, this is a cool wine. Oh, yeah, and I taste it, and it's really great. I'm going to put it on my list, and it's selling really well. And, and so we're seeing that efflorescent to the top of the list, which we never saw before. <clears throat> so the, I guess the power of sommelier networking, you know, people talk about the power of sommeliers, and I'm not sure that there is that much power of sommeliers. I think there's power of sommelier networking. And sommeliers... Explain that. Because a sommelier can influence you, influence you to point you towards a wine. No or question, but but there's also a lot mean? of resistance in in an individual situation where a sommelier. I mean, some people go into a restaurant and are open to being influenced by right. the wine director. Other people are very wary of being sold something and feel like they're being upsold or feel like they're you know they they get nervous about it and they don't like it. Um, and so they're resistant and they're going to look at their phone and they're going to see what's on Vivino or they're going to see what's, um, they're going to, they're going to look at the list and look at their phone and figure out what they're going to order on their, on their own. Um, so there's some resistance and there's some acceptance, but in terms of power, in terms of market power, where I see that really developing is that there is a whole, um, spectrum uh, from the very high level master psalms on down of sommelier networking. And there's a community of them. They talk to each other. They, they see what each other, what, what's happening at each other's lists. They see what's working. They listen to each other. They participate in competitions together. And they're active on social. They're very active on social. And so the things that are working in one place will then be picked up and work in another place. And that will drive the market in a way that Years ago, it never did. I, I, I agree. So that's what I mean by sommelier power. Yes, I, I mean you explained it very well, and, and I agree with that. I think that not phenomenon, but it is a phenomenon. Yeah, is is bigger and wider now than ever. Mm-hmm. I had Kevin Zraeli on three years ago. He said. When I was at Windows of the World, there were seven Psalms in New York. You yeah. go into 11 Madison, there's seven. At mm-hmm. you know, so there's a very big network, yeah. and they're very into it. And, and they're, they're very professional. They're, they, yes. they take themselves professional, you know, as professionals, and, and they are. And they, they're knowledgeable. They know their work. They know their wine. And they, and they want to deliver interesting stuff. So yeah. um, you know, I, I think that it's... it's to me, one of the better one of the better trends that's happened in the industry over the last two decades. I, I agree. That's a good one. Um, we don't have that much time left, so I wanted to ask you as you look forward, let's say into twenty twenty, what can we expect? What do you see? Um, when you asked me that to talk, to think about that, and I do want to talk a little bit about the Koto Ozon. We're going to, as yeah. soon as you answer okay. this, we're going to do our weekly wine sip and talk about the two Great. wines. That's why I want to finish. Great. This is my last question to you. Great. And then we taste wines. So I thought a lot about that, and I thought that the most interesting thing to me that I've been hearing about is regenerative agriculture. Because I hear a lot about sustainability and I've been reading, I mean, I've been reading a lot of interesting books that aren't about wine, like The Overstory or The Water Dancer, Tanishi Coates' book. I don't know if you've read that. Not yet. Um, But they're really about how people um, strip a place of its organic life and move on and how they extract what they want and then leave. And... 
sustainability is saying, okay, well, we need to figure out how to be sustainable here in this place. Right. Regenerative agriculture is saying, we need to figure out how to make our place better. We need to figure out how to make the life in this place. So not just sustain, but take it to the next level and make yeah. it better. Yeah. And it really is, I think it's an interesting challenge for, you know, Mimi Castile in, in, um, in Oregon is doing a lot with this. Um, there's a whole group of women. A lot of, you know, a lot of what's interesting about it to me is that I hear more, it more from women than from guys. Really? Yeah. And I'm, I know there are guys involved in regenerative agriculture, but I haven't met one yet. <laughs> so I'm hoping maybe through this radio show, someone will contact me. But I, there's a whole group of women in Napa Valley that are that are discussing regenerative agriculture. There's um, Deirdre um, Heakin. There, there are people up north from there. And, and it's a different way of thinking about the environment and the ecology of your vineyard that I think will become more and more important in the coming year and the years to come. It's nice to see that when you look forward that that's what we're talking about, you know, and not restrained cabs or mm -hmm. <laughs> even still pinots from Champenois. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think that's a great way and a great way to end. Josh, we have a few more minutes. I always ask you to bring some wines in that are relevant to the year, to our discussion to what you've been doing. So we tasted the Jean Vazel, um, the still Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. and we you poured the... Cote aux Enfants from Boulanger. Boulanger, which mm -hmm. is a very well-known... Yeah. So Boulanger um, is known for its RD, for its Granane, Champagne. Right. And this is actually a wine that they've been making since 1934. This still the red? still the still red wine they've been making still red wines before but from but they bought Jacques Bollinger bought a bunch of land he he consolidated this land up at the top of the hill in Ai and they use the west facing slope for their rosé wines and they use the east facing slope for this you know the the morning sun slope for this wine it's funny because when you poured it, it was a little sharper and edgier, and we mm -hmm. talked about this stuff being decanted. I don't know if we talked about it on air during the break, but how it would soften. And this wine, in a matter of 15, 20 minutes, was nice and has become beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really delicious. And this is made very differently from the Jean Bazel wine. How? So um, Gilles Disco, who was the... Um, who is the cellar master at Boulanger. He was originally the viticulturist. And so he knows this vineyard really, really well. He's been experimenting with increasing the amount of stems in the fermentation to try to get a different kind of tannin in the wine. Um, this wine is made in barrel versus the um, Jean Bessel, which is made in, in stainless steel. Um, but like a neutral barrel? I'm not certain. I, I don't it, think it's all. I don't think it's all new oak. Certainly, no. But I mean, um, it's pretty neutral yeah. as far as what you get on the nose. But I don't know. Top. I don't know the percentage of new oak in the fourteen. Right. This is the two thousand fourteen. So in fifteen, I know he started using significantly more stems, um, and started playing around with stems that year. So this year, this is sort of at the beginning of transition time for this wine, and they really their goal was to be able to make Cote aux Enfants every year consistently whereas before they would make a really great one and then like i tasted an 89 with them that was really great a 99 that was really great um some wines were great some wines were not so great 
and they they are trying to find a way to manage this property and to manage this wine in the cellar so that it it expresses itself beautifully every year. And I think that I, I think this is a beautiful wine. I think they're both really they're both beautiful and they have this berry freshness to them and they have a chalk soil rather than a limestone and clay soil character. And I the only way that I can express that is that it's they're narrower right. than than you get in Burgundy. What um what do we pair wines with this? What type of foods? I think that um when I tasted some of the older Coteau Champenois, um, they reminded me of, I mean, it tasted like, the salinity tasted like a scallop, um, <laughs> but, they, but it was a red wine. And so it would so go well I, with seafood? I think it would go really well with shellfish. Um, and because they, because they have that zingy acidity. I, they have, I agree. It yeah. doesn't, it would be a good compliment. Yeah. Um, what... The two wines, if you can find them, what are we talking about retail? I mean, give people an idea. In terms of price, I know that the... Ballpark. Yeah. Um, I know that the Coteau Zanfant is much more expensive than the Bazelle. Um, are we talking 50, 60? Or I think they're probably more than that. I more? mean, I, um, I bought the Ely off of the list at Gramercy a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, for about $300. Ah, so, um, so they're, they're not cheap wines, but no. they're but they're both of them are in a similar price range. No, these are not. The the, the Ellie was a two thousand eight. No, Ellie, but I it, mean the two were the Vizelle and the Bolognese. No, the Vizelle is 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 is, 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 is less expensive right. than the Cote aux Enfants. What do you think the, the range this, of the, the Cote aux Enfants is a very rare wine? Okay, um, and so this is a treat to drink and a treat to talk about. Yeah. And if you could find it, it would be a treat to buy it and yeah. drink it. And, and you it's can, not going to be that cheap. You can look it up on Wine Searcher and you'll get mm. the price. Um, they're, not, they're not inexpensive wines. Right. But they're, what, what, what's interesting to me about them is that they are significantly, for a Grand Cru Pinot Noir, they're significantly less expensive than Grand Cru Burgundy. And for me, I like drinking them as much and in some cases more. So there's a point well taken. It's Pinot Noir. It's from Champagne, and it has its nuances. But according to Josh, they're very interesting, and you should try them versus, you know, Pinots from Burgundy. All right, Josh, we have to wrap up. Believe it or not, we ran over an hour. We probably could sit here another hour. Um, I want to great talking you for to you, coming Sam. in. Um, let me do just a quick wrap-up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Um, please subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. If you like the show, go on that platform and uh, say some nice things about us. Um, follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I know it's confusing. It's just a little less. Use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. I will post all the wines that Josh and I drank and talked about. We covered a lot of stuff. We didn't do a wine list this uh, year because Josh has done it in the past. So I will uh, list the wines that we drank and some of the wines that we talked about. Um, Josh, where can we find 
Well, before I ask you about social media, I know I want to ask you two things. The current issue on the newsstand right now is what? December. December issue with champagne and California Cabernet. Yep. And do you discuss the still wines in that issue, or was that another issue? Um, These still wines, that was in the October issue. Okay, so if you want to know more about that. Um, So the December issue, look for that. And... Don't you have something exciting coming up in New York in January? We have our Top 100 event, which we're bringing to New York for the first time ever. We've done it in San Francisco Francisco. 16 years in in a row. Explain quickly what that is. So we taste probably 11,500 wines a year (laughs) with our panels in controlled blind situations with with our critics and, and tasters. And the wines that get recommended, we then look to see who's performed at the very highest level in each region. And we select 100 wineries that are performing at the very highest level for the year. So 100 out of 11,000. 100 wineries. 100 wineries. 11,000 wines. wines. But if you break that down, even in the 20s. There would be thousands of wineries involved. So that's fairly nice. And so they're really, really great producers. They're all bringing their top scoring wine. And the public can buy tickets? The public can buy tickets. Where do we go? Um, Wineandspiritsmagazine.com backslash top 100. And that's where you can go for more info. And Josh, if we want to follow Wine and Spirits on social, Instagram, Wine we, and Spirits. I believe so. You know, I'm the wrong person to ask I social. checked. It's yeah. Wine and Spirits. Okay. <laughs> um, and Twitter is the same. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Sam. Josh, thank you again for joining us. It's become a tradition, and I hope we're both sitting here next year. I wish you the best. Thank you to our engineer, Jeet, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben-Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.